When it comes to vaccine mandates, first came the healthcare workers. Why are we not talking about natural immunities? It should not be forced upon us to either vaccinate or lose our life even. Then came the universities. Rutgers University is requiring students to get the COVID-19 vaccine for the fall semester. Rutgers, of course, is New Jersey's largest public college. The clock is ticking for colleges and universities to decide if they will require students to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So far, more than 400 campuses will require students and staff to get the shot. And then there was FDA approval. The FDA granting full approval to Pfizer BioNTech's COVID shot. Let's get to Meg Terrell now. And now COVID vaccine mandates are spreading. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin, and your refusal has cost all of us. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. So from work to school to the bar, the powers that be are mandating more vaccines. And many people are wondering, is that legal? So when you have a widespread threat, and a real threat, of course, the government, and that's both the federal and state governments, have significant power. I'd say even more than significant. It is uh, sometimes an almost absolute power. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the legality of vaccine mandates. Later in the show, a unique immunotherapy is helping more children with cancer achieve remission. But first, more and more businesses are requiring that their employees and even customers be vaccinated or that they take COVID tests. It's all evolving territory and has many people wondering, quite reasonably, is all of this legal? Margaret Foster Riley is a professor of law at the University of Virginia. She says, in a public health crisis, this is all perfectly legal. Margaret, more and more employers and governments are mandating employees get the COVID vaccine or undergo weekly testing. Is that legal? Can they do that? Uh, yes, it is legal, um, but there are lots of different foundations for that legality. Uh, and this is moving so quickly. For a long time, what we were talking about were employer mandates. We haven't seen that many state mandates yet. But of course, last week we heard about federal mandates not yet put in place, but where President Biden signaled that he would be calling for federal mandates. How much power do governments have when it comes to mandating vaccines in the face of a widespread threat? So when you have a widespread threat, and a real threat, of course, the government, and that's both the federal and state governments, have significant power. I'd say even more than significant. It is sometimes an almost absolute power. The way we call this in the law is a compelling interest. And when you have a widespread pandemic that's killing people, that is the very definition of a federal or state compelling interest. What's the historical precedent? When did this come into being that U.S. governments have the right to mandate people get vaccinated against threat? So most of our legal history focuses on state power. And there is a very important Supreme Court case from 1905 called Jacobson. And in Jacobson, the Supreme Court affirmed the state's police power to mandate vaccines. What had happened in 1905? So in 1905, there was a smallpox outbreak in Massachusetts. As a result, state and local authorities mandated a smallpox vaccine. And a Swedish pastor, a resident of Massachusetts, but from Sweden originally, um, said that this was a violation of his liberty interests and he refused to get vaccinated. And... Uh, he was sanctioned. At the time, it was $5, but it was a criminal sanction. So actually a, a far greater sanction than any uh, of the mandates I've seen thus far. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, affirmed the state's power to mandate vaccines in the time of a smallpox outbreak. Was that outbreak Describe that outbreak. What was it like? How widespread and dangerous? 
Well, smallpox, of course, is a, an amazingly dangerous disease, um, and it is um, spread pretty easily among populations, and therefore people were terribly frightened for good reason about smallpox. And the state had already had about 100 years of experience with vaccines. From the 18th century, you had individuals, and in fact, one of the most famous persons who vaccinated her family was Abigail Adams, vaccinated her family using um, cowpox as a vaccine for smallpox. Those were sort of homebrew remedies. By 1900, you start having actual vaccines that are developed by what was then the medical community, to um, to vaccinate the population against smallpox. It was one of the most successful first vaccines we had against a dreadful disease. Do you think it's a problem? I mean, thank goodness we came with, thank goodness we were able to come up with these vaccines for COVID-19 so quickly. But do you think that also created a problem with public trust? I think it did because people, even like me, thought there was no way we would actually be able to produce a vaccine in a year's time. And so there was a lot of discussion both in the media, but even among experts about whether that was even possible and concern that that would mean that the vaccine might be rushed. When you were finally eligible to get the vaccine, did you rush to do it or were you still scared? No, I rushed to do it. Um, by that time, I was uh, very sure of both the safety and the efficacy. Um, but I also listened to the entire day's long session from the advisory committee at FDA that was reviewing it. So I knew all the ups and downs about the vaccine. I had no concerns at the time that I got vaccinated, which was quite early, actually. I was vaccinated in uh, in January twenty. 21. Um, and uh, I was thrilled to get it. I'm curious, since you are such an early vaccinated person, are you more worried about yours wearing off now? Are you eager for the booster shots? I am worried about it wearing off. I'm still uncertain about the science for the booster shots. I've actually um, been looking both at the pros and cons very seriously. I will again listen to the advisory committee meeting when it happens in a, in about a week, I guess, right now, um, and to try and understand what's going on. Uh, the issue, though, for me is I think the boosters are perfectly safe. The real question is whether they're needed or not, and that has been confused. In my case, my hunch is right now that there are maybe ethical reasons that I might be concerned about getting boosters, but I, I think those are less important. Um, I would get it if I had the chance right now based on what I know. Your ethical hesitancy would be, why should Americans who already have access to the main shots get the booster before the rest of the world gets any? Yeah, that's exactly how it's been phrased. The reality, though, is I think it's a little more complicated than that and why I would ultimately still get the booster. Right now, we have quite a large supply of vaccine. The real difficulty has been getting vaccine into arms and all the other logistical problems. Um, but it is complex, and it's an ethically uh, fraught question and one that we need to really think about. I know there's a lot of confusion about boosters right now, primarily whether or not they're needed. Can you imagine they would be mandated? Um, yes, I can certainly imagine that they would be mandated. Uh, that will depend on what the data shows. If we're in a situation where we need boosters to prevent widespread transmission, you would imagine that the mandates for vaccination would include boosters. Where it is being mandated, why are employers mandating the COVID-19 vaccine, but they don't mandate the flu shot every year? So the first thing is actually some employers, namely healthcare work, uh, healthcare uh, facilities, actually uh, mandate the vaccine, flu vaccine. Uh, so healthcare uh, settings have frequently been mandating vaccines for more than a decade now. 
Um, but COVID is actually, especially with the Delta variant, first of all, much more transmissible and has a much more significant hospitalization rate and a much more significant death rate than the flu does. And so in those instances, you will see that both healthcare facilities, but also regular employers are looking for a vaccine mandate as a way to get back to business. This has all happened so quickly, of course, but do you think health officials generally at the government level and locally have responded well to people with their hesitancies? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question in many ways. Um, I'm not positive that any of this in our current culture was avoidable. Part of the reason we have this confusion is because we were so successful in producing a vaccine so quickly. Um, we are in a, in a culture right now in the United States where we're quite polarized, and that leads to all sorts of fracturing. Um, we no longer view experts necessarily as being the people we should listen to, and that's become a real problem. So I'm not sure that it was avoidable in this instance. What I am sure of is that we've got to figure out how to do it better for the next time. What are some of the best ways to address vaccine hesitancy? Uh, one of the most successful things I've heard of is um, some nurses in North Carolina who contacted their patients when they looked through the medical records, seeing that their patients had not been vaccinated, that, and then they contacted them individually and talked to them about why they should get the vaccine. In most instances, in that case, uh, the the patients actually went and got their vaccines. So that was remarkably successful. It is pretty clear for especially the most vaccine hesitant, we have to understand why they're vaccine hesitant. Is this a question of ideology? Is this a question of it's difficult to get the vaccine? Or is this misconceptions about the safety? And with trusted people or people they trust, we actually have to reach out to them, if not individually in smaller groups. Why is there particular hesitancy in Southern culture? Uh, I think part of that gets tied up into the politics and also political and cultural identity. Uh, but even in the South, I think it's not fair to actually use a broad brush. Uh, I think, for example, what you'll see with people of color in the South, a lot of that was a, a different kind of disinformation than what you would see among uh, people who are viewing this as a political ideological question. What do you suspect may be the future of COVID vaccine cards, COVID vaccine card proofs? So there are a couple different things that might happen. Uh, one experiment we see right now is New York has a way of getting a state verification beyond your card. Uh, and so that's been an experiment that people are using. You could actually, in Virginia, for example, uh, contact the uh, Virginia Department of Health and get verification of your vaccine in an official form. And you could use those. Uh, those are a lot harder to, uh, to fake, obviously, uh, than a vaccine card. Um, for most situations, though, for a situation like, let's imagine I want to go to a concert and they require a vaccine card or a proof of vaccination, probably my vaccine card is going to be the most useful thing in those situations. It needs to be something that's very simple. Now, in a different context, let's imagine my employer has a mandate. There, they may demand official proof. And I think we are seeing the states and the departments of health and the different states coming out with ways to give people certain proof that their employer will be able to accept. Margaret Foster Riley, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It was my pleasure. Margaret Foster Riley is a professor of law at the University of Virginia. 
Children with cancer have to endure the same torturous chemo and radiation sessions as adults, but my next guest sees a future where immunotherapies will play a greater role in curing and containing childhood cancer. Dr. Daniel Trey Lee is a pediatric oncologist at the University of Virginia and director of UVA's Pediatric Stem Cell Transplantation and Immunotherapy. Trey, during your training, there was one point where you heard a talk by a doctor helping people survive cancers that that had dark prospects otherwise, that might have been a death sentence otherwise. What was it that he was doing that had electrified you about the possibility in cancer treatments now? Yeah, Sarah, that's right. When, When I was in training to be a pediatric oncologist at the National Cancer Institute, I heard a talk from... Dr. Steve Rosenberg, um, who is a leader in what we call cellular immunotherapies for cancer, uh, where he uses uh, immune cells from patients to induce tumor responses in those patients. Um, And his data that he showed me in melanoma just blowed me away. At the time, you know, melanoma, especially metastatic melanoma, um, there wasn't really any good therapy for it like like there is now. Um, but he had a couple of patients that they took T cells, which is one of the kinds of immune cells in our body, took those T cells out of patients' tumors, grew them up in his lab, and then gave them back to those same patients and had miraculous responses uh, with the tumors disappearing and these patients living long term. So I I walked away from that talk really thinking that is really cool. And how can we do that uh, for pediatric cancers? Was he doing it for adults? Yes, he was doing it in adults with metastatic melanoma. Don't we do everything for children that we do for adults when it comes to fighting cancer? Well, not entirely. Um, You know, pediatric cancers are completely different from adult cancers. Um, so the, the way that Dr. Rosenberg was treating those patients with those adults with melanoma, it wouldn't translate very well to kids with cancer because kids' cancers tend not to have a lot of mutations in their, in their tumors. So the immune system can't recognize it as well. So we had to come up with a new way to get a kid's immune system to recognize the tumors for what they are and then attack it. So is doing that sort of immunotherapy in childhood cancers the the go-to standard treatment now, or is this still experimental? Well, it's no longer experimental. Um, The first um, T-cell-based immunotherapy was actually approved in 2018 for pediatric refractory relapse leukemia. Um, That was the first time in a long time that a commercially available product had been approved for a child before it was approved for an adult. So that was a big win for the pediatric uh, community. Tell me about the first time that you applied this therapy and it worked. Was it frightening? Well, the first time we did this um, at the National Cancer Institute in a child was in 2012. And I have to say it was, I was absolutely anxious Um, you know, I spent a lot of time next to the kid's bedside, um, just watching and waiting for, for side effects because, you know, we had some semblance of an idea of what would happen, um, based on some, some adults that were treated at other institutions and and at our institution before. Um, but still kids react very differently than adults do. And in fact, we did see that that some of the side effects were um, pretty severe in some of the patients that we treated. Um, this was a brand new frontier. You know, nobody had seen the kind of side effects that we saw before, and, and certainly not to that degree. What did you see? High, high fevers? Yeah, the, the first thing that usually happens is um, the kids will get, will get a fever. And sometimes it can be you know, a low-grade fever, but many times it's very high, maybe even 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Sometimes they get um, hypoxic, meaning they, they um, need oxygen in order to keep um, the oxygen levels in their, 
in their blood to, to a normal level, they have to have extra oxygen or maybe even a breathing tube. So it can really range from uh, in symptoms from just a mild fever all the way up to very severe severe disease. Um, and sometimes they get um, hypoxic, meaning they, they um, need oxygen in order to keep um, the oxygen levels in their in their blood to, to a normal level. They have to have extra oxygen or maybe even a breathing tube. So it can really range from uh, in symptoms from just a mild fever all the way up to very severe severe disease. So you really need a team with each patient that knows how to respond quickly to um, address the side effects. Yes, you really do need a team, uh, an experienced team. Um, and for a pediatrics, a pediatric experienced team too. Um, and these are, are rare, um, you know, this is a rare bunch of people. Not every hospital can can deliver this kind of therapy safely to, to children. You know, when we, when we first started this in 2012, um, there were really only three centers in the country that were doing this. Um, but now there's a, a, there's a lot more than that. So it's, it's really grown in the expertise, um, and we've been able to train a lot more teams to be able to do this kind of therapy. Would you say now when a child has leukemia, the child is automatically funneled to one of these institutions and gets stem cell therapy, or might they never receive that? Yeah, so when a child is first diagnosed with leukemia, um, like as I said, it's a very curable disease with chemotherapy. So they don't necessarily need to get these types of immunotherapies um, off the bat. There may be a day when, when we get there and we, we start treating kids with these cell, cell immunotherapies up front. But for right now, that's not the case. Why not always treat with immunotherapy instead of chemo and radiation? One day we might get there, but right now it's it's hard to muck with a chemotherapy regimen that for most uh, childhood leukemias puts 95% or better into remission uh, with a month or two of, of that therapy. So the immunotherapy has to basically be better than that. It sounds like the immunotherapy is also toxic to some extent. Is there a way the profession is there a way you've developed to help manage the side effects? Yes, they can be quite toxic and and fortunately um, we have a drug that um, was found to be helpful and it's called tocilizumab. <laughs> hard to spell, hard to say um, but it's absolutely essential to manage um, these types of immunotherapy or CAR T-cell patients. And unfortunately, right now, um, a lot of that stockpile of drug has been diverted to patients who are fighting COVID because uh, it's been found to be useful um, in patients with severe COVID disease. So unfortunately, what that means is that, you know, there may be a, a point in time in the near future where a patient with relapsed cancer might not be able to get a life-saving cell therapy because we don't have uh, full access to that drug, tocilizumab. Why can't we massively ramp up production now that we know it's in short supply? Yeah, well, I, I guarantee you that the the um, company that makes tocilizumab is, is probably trying to do just that. Um, but it takes time to get that from initializing production to the market. How do you make sure that you've got a supply on hand for your patients? Well, we try to order as much as we can, um, as often as we can. Um, we're all involved in weekly meetings, keeping track of our supply, and trying to do what we can to make sure that every patient who needs it can get it. When the young patients who are experiencing um, remission of their leukemias get this treatment, what has been the survival benefit so far? Ah, well, so these are, in the study that, that I ran um, at the National Cancer Institute, we treated about 50 children with multiply relapsed um, ALL, the most common type of childhood leukemia. And we found that about 70% of the patients responded. And of those who responded, the ones who went on to get 
a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant um, afterwards did exceptionally well. I mean, around 70% of those patients who went on to transplant were alive and without leukemia for an average follow-up of five years almost, um, which for this patient population was just amazing. Do these CAR T-cells work in the other cancers children experience or just leukemia so far? Well, so they work for, for what we call B-cell malignancies, so like leukemia and lymphomas. In adults, um, there's now a commercially available product that works in multiple myeloma. But these are all, you know, hematologic-based or blood-based um, cancers. We don't really have a uh, slam-dunk cell-based immunotherapy or CAR T-cell therapy that works well in solid tumors. What other hopes do you have, let's say over the next five to 10 years in your lab and what you want to accomplish? Yeah. Well, you know, we're aside from making this quote-unquote universal CAR that I mentioned, um, the other part of our lab is really geared at, at trying to make these products, all of these CAR T-cell products, safer. You know, we talked a lot about the side effects that these kids and adults get them too. You know, we talked a lot about what they go through, needing intensive care units. It's really expensive, um, you know, and and hard on the patient. So we need to come up with a a better way, a better product that we can give these patients. So we're approaching that in really two ways. Um, One is a way that we can control the on and off state and we can um, flip the switch, if you will, and turn it on, flip flip it back and then it turns off and vice versa. Um, And then the other way is a mechanism that we've designed that will automatically sense um, a lot of the inflammation that's going on in patients. And that turns it into a, uh, an inhibitory signal or an attenuation of uh, the signal uh, that's given to the CAR T cell. So we kind of are almost creating a rheostat, if you will, to balance the, the tumor killing with the side effects. Dr. Daniel Traley, thank you for sharing your insights and with good reason. No, thank you so much, Sarah, for appreciate your time and, and your interest. Dr. Daniel Trey Lee is a pediatric oncologist at the University of Virginia and director of UVA's Pediatric Stem Cell Transplantation and Immunotherapy. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. You got to trust your gut unless your microbiome is suffering from too much of the wrong foods. Our guts are complex living things, a whole ecosystem within ourselves that we alone cultivate. And when we teach our guts bad habits, they stick. Dr. Jasmahan Bajaj is a professor of medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University and co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. He says gut health plays a huge role in addiction. Jess Mohan, in your own research, you transplanted bacteria from one person's stool into 10 volunteers who had severe alcohol use disorder and cirrhosis of the liver. Apparently, nine of them experienced reduced cravings and drank less compared to only three in the placebo group. What is the status of that experiment now? We followed them up for several months afterwards, and we found that this craving reduction, which was at day 15, translated into improvement in alcohol-related hospitalizations afterwards. So not only did this last for 15 days, it lasted for more than six months afterwards. Uh, Around 80% of the placebo group, unfortunately, were either hospitalized or seen in the emergency room for an alcohol-related condition over the next six months, whereas only two of the other group ended up being in the hospital or in the ER for alcohol-related problems. Why did you suspect before you even did the experiment that this might be the case? What had been done before you? 
we have been studying what we call the gut-brain axis for quite a long time. And we, uh, as a transplant liver uh, specialist, I'm also one of the uh, authorities in a disease called hepatic encephalopathy, where the brain does not function because your liver is a problem. So people with cirrhosis, like the ones we include in this trial, often get a situation where they become comatose or very confused because of products that are made by the gut. And the treatment for that is not really a treatment for the brain. It's not really a treatment for the liver. All we do is make the people's microbes behave better by having them have multiple bowel movements. So if a patient can come to you comatose, if they have this condition, you have to give them things that make them have several bowel movements and they will wake up. So this actually prompted us to look further as to whether other things that are concomitant in these patients, including alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders that lead to cirrhosis, could also have an impact related to this. It builds upon decades and years of research that us and other people have done in the field of how the liver, the gut communicate with the brain and how this can be actually manipulated to help patients. When, when, the, when the consequences of your experiment were made more widely known, did you find that people misinterpreted how revolutionary this might be? I think hope springs eternal in everyone's chest. And that's what happened. I got so many emails from people who wanted to explore this option because either them or their loved one had tried everything else. And my heart really goes out to them because I see this in my clinic. And it is from that, that area of he, trying to heal patients that we came up with this trial. And again, was this what we call a fecal transplant? It would be called a fecal transplant, but it's kind of a misnomer. Even though the microbes that we transplant come from someone's feces, they're actually quite processed. They're actually in a form where it's in a capsule. The capsules are completely smell-free um, and they are easily swallowable. They do not dissolve anywhere. So any of the misgivings that potential people might have are easily fixed when you actually tell them what it's actually all about. But we're still a long way from being able to go down to the CVS pharmacy and ask for these capsules, right? Yes. Like any drug, you want to first make sure that you do a phase one study, which means it's safe, which we have done. A phase two study, which means it is effective in a larger group of population, which is we are in what in the process of doing. And then a phase three trial, which means larger and larger groups of people get assigned to it to make sure this is then safe for this situation. Right now, we are in the phase two phase for this uh, uh, exploration. You do not want to jump a drug prematurely or any uh, medication prematurely before a careful analysis of the risks and benefits are uh, understood. Um, so therefore, you, uh, it may be a good thing that you don't get it in CVS right now because it is not ready for prime time. What do you think it is in our gut when we're addicted to, let's say, alcohol that leads to this mental craving? It's a two-way two street. And I truly say that the way to your brain is through your gut. And this is important for us to realize because alcohol use disorder is a very complicated disorder. It has psychosocial aspects, which means how, what was your environment like. It has genetic aspects. What were your parents like? What are your siblings like? Uh, and it has a strong biological signature as well, in addition to genes, which is the gut microbes. So the gut microbes can process the alcohol and then produce some products that are harmful to your gut as well as your liver, which unfortunately cause a positive cycle for craving and getting more alcohol on board. So this is one of the many parts that is abnormal or something that needs to be fixed. And the hope is that anyone who comes in with alcohol use disorder, that microbiota in the future may be one of the many things that we can offer to these patients either solely or together with existing and future therapies that those patients might need. It's so interesting that you have said our microbiome or gut is like a second brain for us. Could you expand on that? Yes, the microbiome produces a lot of neurotransmitters, which are chemicals that help transmit nerve signals. They also generate hormones and they generate all the chemicals that you would need for the nerves to actually function. And more importantly, our gut has more nerves than the spinal cord. So therefore, when you say you have a gut feeling, it is actually true. 
there is actually gut feelings. You, this can be transmitted directly to the brain or through the bloodstream. So they have the capability of affecting a lot of processes. They affect how we actually digest food, and we already talked about how they affect how we digest and process alcohol. They also have the capability of changing the medications, whether the medications are more active or less active. So all these things make it a very interesting but very complicated uh, scenario. Was there a moment in your own professional career that this really sank in for you and you changed what you put into your gut? Uh, yes, I've always been a relatively moderate coffee drinker, but I've actually become a, a bigger coffee drinker. Clearly, after this, uh, I, uh, uh, I am a teetotaler. I do not like the taste of alcohol. So I don't know. I, I, so I, that was never an issue had here. But what we do have is um, uh, I do have been very mindful about eating. And by mindful, I meant is to make sure I actually do not scarf down the food, do not gulp it down actually understand what I'm eating and make sure that everything that goes into my mouth, actually, I know what potential consequences might be for my gut. What else are you seeing in the labs of others around the world and around the country that have excited your interest? So my interest is always on high level when it comes to gut microbes. But clearly, there have been some other provocative studies, albeit in mice right now, that uh, aging can be reduced. Uh, the, when you take uh, gut microbes from young mice and put them into uh, older mice, the older mice actually start behaving like younger mice. Um, and other studies, including our own, have shown, uh, have actually differentiated between people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which, as you know, is a big consequence of war and deployment-related issues, uh, in their microbes. So we are getting uh, inspiration daily from multiple uh, reports that are coming out, not only in the humans, but in animals. And also, we are always relentlessly pursuing the precision matching that I talked to you about. Which patient, which donor, which recipient, which condition? Is that the area that is showing the most promise? We've talked about that, let's say, in chemotherapies, the administering of certain therapies for certain cancers and certain patients. This also is the case for gut medications. Absolutely. That is such a fascinating way as the gut microbes can actually process medications for us. And in fact, sometimes we need them to process medications or activate certain medications into their form in which they can fight cancers. In revolutionary studies done in the past, smaller still all of now, when you gave a fecal transplant to a patient who was unresponsive to chemotherapy, they suddenly became responsive to chemotherapy because the correct gut microbes, which were missing previously, were now introduced that changed those drugs to their active form that now were able to fight cancer. So we are just scratching the surface of this immense resource that we have in us and outside us. And we want to actually make sure that we don't oversell the promise, but we also keep people abreast of what's going on uh, uh, without uh, falsely raising hopes. This has been so exciting talking with you. Thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. And thank you so much for your invitation. Dr. Jasmahan Bajaj is a liver specialist and professor of medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's also chair of the North American Consortium for Study of End-Stage Liver Disease. My next guest is also researching our internal plumbing, but at an even more granular level. When she was a chemical engineering student at Tulane in Louisiana, Jennifer Munson studied the way oil moves through pipes at big oil refineries. She saw a connection between those pipe systems and the different joints and pipe systems in our body. Her career led her to Genentech in San Francisco and then a Fulbright scholarship in Switzerland. Munson is now a professor at Virginia Tech's Fralin Biomedical Research Institute. She's working with other researchers there to approach illnesses with greater attention to the way fluid moves through our bodies and affects our health. Her belief is that fluid flow and drainage through a tumor can alter how a tumor responds to drugs, and understanding that may lead to new tumor treatments. Jenny, tell me about when you first started thinking about body fluid flow. I understand you were a chemical engineering student at Tulane University in Louisiana. 
and you were traveling around the state and saw the way that oil moves through pipes in these big factories all around you. Yeah, so during my undergraduate career, a big part of our work and and our study was to visit chemical plants, oil plants in Louisiana, especially southern Louisiana. It's just filled with them. So we'd drive for you know, sometimes hours out through the swamps and we'd get to these huge plants just rising out of like the flatness that is Louisiana. And so you'd see these giant towers and you just knew that there were just this massive amounts of fluids, um, you know, gases and liquids moving through these things. And we were there to model them and see them and understand them and try to describe them mathematically was our real purpose. And so when I was looking at these things that are so massive, when you really think about it, the same types of movements and the same types of fluid transport is happening in our body all the time. Um, And so that's kind of where I started really thinking about, you know, fluid flow and where I really fell in love with it, I guess, because it was just this really neat phenomenon. And it's just happening all the time. And the same there, it's happening all the time. And, you know, at an oil plant, it's so important because it can be very dangerous if something goes awry, but the same is true in your body. Like it can be dangerous if something goes wrong with your fluid flow. How big a deal is fluid flow in our body? It's mostly what, water or blood that we're thinking of? So it's all water. I mean, our bodies are comprised of almost all water in general. We, I think, you know, generally think of blood. That's what we think of when we think of liquids in our body because you get a cut on your finger and blood comes out. Um, And that's what you see. But there's also things like lymph, which is just the stuff that's moving into your lymphatic system, which is draining your body. You have, and then you have the fluid in between the blood and the lymph, which is this interstitial fluid, which is one of our foci um, in my group. So, so how does water flow through our bodies? You're right. It's probably a lot more than I realize. It flows in and around tissues. Yes. So I think many people are familiar with the circulatory system, which is moving blood throughout our body. And that blood is essential, you know, for every tissue in our body to stay alive. But what happens after the blood gets to a tissue? You don't think about what happens next. And I think that that's, um, you know, just as important because if you just had the blood being made and moving through our bodies and it never, that fluid never went anywhere, um, you can have problems. And we do see that um, clinically. Now as a biomedical researcher, you're looking at how the flow of water around brain cells can aggravate cancer and even Alzheimer's disease. What's the relationship between water flowing in and around cells and cancer or Alzheimer's? Yeah, so you need that water to move around the cells because its number one function, as far as we know, is to deliver nutrients and remove waste. And so you need that to happen. Um, But what it's also doing and what we're really interested in is how that movement of the fluid is actually telling cells to do different things. And so the cells can actually feel that fluid moving along it, and they have a lot of different ways that they do that, um, and that can direct them to do different things. So in the case of tumor cells, we see that it can direct them to start moving, which is a first step towards creating secondary tumors or metastasizing. And so that's really a negative outcome that we um, want to avoid. What leads to heightened fluid flow, which you said could facilitate tumor cell growth and metastases? What would happen in our bodies that might lead to heightened fluid flow? Yeah, so when a tumor develops, it is, you know, this mass of cells growing in this confined space. And what happens is you're kind of, you know, filling that space and it's causing pressure to build up. Additionally, mm, yeah. These these tumors have a lot of fluid coming into them. Um, because there's more cells there, they require more 
food, more nutrients. Um, and so you get just more fluid buildup and that has to go somewhere. So it's basically just that you have this pressure buildup and it needs some sort of release valve. And so that release valve tends to be that the fluid just starts to go into the surrounding space wherever it can. And that is why you get these increases in the fluid flow compared to what is normally there, um, which is much lower. How can you see the flow? How can you tell flow is increased around a tumor? Yeah, so we use um, some imaging methods that are used in the clinic. So if, if a patient comes in with a tumor, they undergo MRI um, imaging. And so we can use standard imaging methods to actually um, mathematically determine what the flow um, is like in those tumors. I understand there aren't many researchers who are this laser focused on looking at fluid flow when it comes to treating disease. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, I think there's just a handful of us really examining it. Um, And in the brain, we're, I believe, the only group looking at it in this context, really trying to understand how fluid is moving in these small spaces between the cells. Are we testing new drugs using fluid flow, or are we just testing them with cells in a Petri dish? I would say the majority of studies are looking at cells in a Petri dish, um, which can be informative. And so one thing that I advocate for, and we always do, is test drugs with flow there um, so that people can look at cells when they're feeling flow, as opposed to just kind of this static situation. Has your lab come up with a good model for experimenting with cell and fluid flow? Yes, so we have a pretty basic model that we use. Um, It requires a 3D space. So that's the the tricky part is that the nice thing about cells in a dish is you just plate them down and they they sit there and you don't have to um, do too many extra steps. Um, with these, you actually have to look at fluid flow. You actually have to have a three-dimensional matrix in which these cells can live, um, and so that's what we work with. But I mean, there's plenty of these systems out there that can be used now. Um, so I do think it's something that you know can be easily implemented. Um, and my group is just working to you know, make it even easier. Um, so what is the, the simplest system that we could get off the shelf and be able to use um, to look at these cells in this context? What is your fondest desire when you imagine a possible outcome of this research you and your team are doing? <sighs> I, I mean, ultimately, as a biomedical engineer, we want to help patients. Um, and so I think the part of our work right now that I'm most excited about is our work to see fluid flow in patients and then be able to help those patients clinically based on that information. And I think we're going at that in a bunch of different ways. And so that's really what I hope to see is that we're able to take this, you know, method that we've developed and the, these systems that we've developed and actually see it, you know, cure a patient um, would be really amazing. With Alzheimer's, you said it's more sort of the reverse. Is there also a problem when our blood flow becomes erratic or blocked or uh, slows down? Yeah, so I did research for a long time on the the first case where flow is too fast. And so we were surprised when we did a few experiments and saw that in some cells, too fast was causing a bad response, but too slow was also causing the same bad response. And it needed to hit a sweet spot. And that it's probably, you know, patient and person specific. Are there things we can do to improve the way fluids move in us? Yeah, so it's probably a broken record, but, you know, a lot of the same things that help with, you know, all sorts of disease apply here. There's been really nice research that has shown that exercising can increase fluid flow in your brain, um, that getting a good night's sleep really helps. And that's really interesting because actually they see that during 
your, when you're sleeping, your cells actually will shrink. And so instead of, you know, having a higher pressure to move fluid through or just having more fluid, you're actually just increasing the spaces between the cells. And so the fluid can get through more easily. So getting massages is always going to help kind of fluid drain out of your tissues um, as well as, you know, just makes you feel better (laughs) generally. Yeah. On the sleep front, I saw a poster recently for power lifters that said, sleep, it's the greatest legal performance enhancing drug. (laughs) Yes, it's definitely true. And I think about this all the time right now with a five month old at home. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You are not getting a performing enhancing drug, right? I know. Yeah. I think I could feel the, uh, the cognitive, the cognitive performance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how nice that you got away for a night at least, right? Yes. Jennifer Munson is a bioengineer and cancer researcher at Virginia Tech's Fralin Biomedical Research Institute. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 